Another day Another dollar Makes you wonder where your money went You can scream Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things that we can all do to live a better life. If times get tough, or even if they don't dictate it, as almost always the case, during my 50-mile commute between Arlington and Frisco, Texas. Today is September 28, 2009. It is a Monday, 77 degrees, and that beautiful cool weather that moved into North Texas for me is gone. It was hot as it could be yesterday and the day before. Um, but I'll tell you a little thing in the opening today about what I did yesterday and something new that's coming for members, Sport Brigade members, in just a second. Uh, before I do that, though, let's tell you what the subject of today's show is going to be. I don't think anybody will be surprised. It's a regular listener. So this is a Monday. We've had a weekend go by. We've had a lot of questions come in. Today's going to be a listener question show. I've got some awesome questions today, uh, quite a bit different than some of the norms, some really cool ones, so I think you're going to enjoy today's show. Um, next, though, let's go ahead and knock out our housekeeping. Number one, make sure you are supporting our advertisers. They do a lot to help keep the show going, and they are also personal endorsements for me. You don't get to be an advertiser just because you have money in hand and want to be on the site. And then you have to go through the listener ad council. Uh, advertiser number one of the day is Directive21.com. They are a reseller of Berkey light water filters. Folks, you got to have water. They'll help you do it the right way. Great support as well. Contact them. They'll help you make the right choice for you. Um, and our other sponsor of the day is SOE Tactical Gear. John Willis has been very good to this show for a very long time. We appreciate him, and he builds some of the most robust, durable tactical equipment in the world. This is stuff, folks, that your kids will give to your grandchildren someday. Uh, You can't wear it out. Trust me, uh, his competitors call it overbuilt, and they mean that as an insult. I find that ironic. Um, Next, make sure you get involved with our forum. I'll leave it at that today, but you'll find a lot of really cool people there. Uh, Last but not least, consider joining the member support. Brigade. You'll get exclusive content available only to members and about $70 worth of free retail value from day one. Um, that's where I'll tell you about what we did yesterday. Yesterday, I shot almost 30 minutes of uh, video. Actually, it was more like an hour of video, but after editing, about 30, a 30 minute video of how to take three Rubbermaid trash cans and turn them into a three part, very cool composting system. Um, the editing's done, it's just rendering out, and that's going to take the rest of today for that to happen. Uh, I'm going to render it in large and small sizes depending on your download speed. That will go into the Member Support Brigade. It will be absolutely free to Member Support Brigade folks, but it will be for sale to those that won't, don't want to join the Member Support Brigade, but just want that video. Uh, it is a it is a very good instructional video. We're very happy with our first video that's really this detailed. A um, little bit of airplane noise at one spot, but otherwise came out really, really great. We'll probably sell that for about four ninety five or something like that, so it'll just add more value to you guys that are Support Brigade members, because you'll be getting it for free. Alright, with that, let's get on to the main topic today. Let's start talking about some questions that you guys sent me. And again, you sent me some really good questions. Uh, A lot of them came in over the weekend as well. Quite a few were in response to uh, shows I did last week, and that is the case with our first question. And uh, it was my show about, you know, equipping your emergency vehicle. 
Well, like I said, when it was in your vehicle, uh, one of the things I recommend that you have is a shovel, even if it's a smaller shovel, uh, not an e-tool. That I really think a shovel's a better way to go for that. And somebody said, why not an e-tool? What, what, what's inherently wrong with an e-tool? Um, an e-tool, there's nothing wrong with it. For those that don't know, an e-tool is a folding shovel. Uh, they're issued to most of our troops, which is about every service, I guess. No, they're issued to you in the Army, because I used one more than I wanted to. Uh, but they're a little small shovel put together. They're about maybe two feet long. They have a spade end that's a little bit bigger than your hand. Uh, they're decent for digging and for entrenching, which is what ETOL stands for, entrenching tool. Uh, they kind of have a serrated edge. They make a reasonable improvised weapon. I sure wouldn't want to take one of those across the head. So they're good for what they are. But why don't I recommend them in your vehicle when I, I would say you're better off with a shovel. Well, it depends. If you have a small car and you have no room left and you can fit an e-tool in there and not a shovel, better than nothing. And that's what an e-tool was designed to be. It was designed that every soldier could carry one. And what you have to understand about the military using e-tools to dig, you know, foxholes and trenches and fighting positions and all is the military has an abundance of manual labor. Uh, you have, you know, a, a platoon of, uh, you know, 60 men, 60 men with e-tools can do a lot of digging really fast. Now, if it's you by yourself trying to get your vehicle unstuck or dealing with some type of another emergency situation, you would like to have more leverage and the ability to move more dirt. So that's why I recommend a shovel if you have room for it. And I guarantee you, if you ask any any soldier out in the field digging a foxhole with an e-tool, would you like a full-size shovel in, in, in exchange for your e-tool right now, they would say yes. It's just that it's not easy for them to carry that attached to a rucksack 15 miles. That's why they carry it. That's why I recommend that if you have the option, if you have the space, you go with a full-size shovel. Make sure it's a good, high-quality shovel. One thing I'll say about an e-tool is that that gun things won't break. I also think those of you with larger uh, bug-out bags that are under the under, that understand that if you have to go on foot, you may have to shed some of that weight. It may be a good idea to carry an e-tool attached to your bob. Um, so that would give you two digging implements, one in the vehicle, one attached to the bob. Uh, it might be overkill for some, but I think it may be a good idea to consider. I know I do it. That's all I can say there. I'll also tell you that my bug-out bag is very heavy, and if I ever have to go on foot, I'm going to have to assess the situation to decide what comes out of it. Again, I've always been of the opinion I would rather have that option than to really need something and not have it. Alright, so next question is completely different and the guy's asking me he's going to go out and buy a gun this coming weekend. And he's between, he's got a handgun, so he's going to make his next purchase either a center fire high caliber rifle or a 22 uh, rimfire. Great move there as far as I'm concerned. Uh, you add a shotgun to that mix and you've got your full four, four gun battery. So, highly endorse the next choice and where you're going from here. I think it makes a lot more sense than another handgun when you have one. But what he's saying is, for a rifle, he's kind of attracted to the 30-30. Let me say, a lot of people will tell you you'd be better off with maybe a, a, a higher-end rifle, a 306 or something like that. 30-30 is plenty good uh, for most situations. A lot of the same people that would tell you to step up in caliber would uh, be totally all right with it if you were buying an AR, which is a 223 
Three, which is a dam site, less uh, less downrange energy capability than a 3030. So I think the caliber's fine. But what he's asking about first is the Marlin 336. He said the gun looks kind of pricey, but he doesn't really know what a lever action 3030 should cost. I would say if you're going to buy a 3030, go with the lever action. Your gut's right there. Uh, the Marlin 336 is expensive on the day you buy it, and it's never expensive again. And what I mean by that is it is a workhorse. It will last you until you give it to your kid, and he'll probably give it to his kid. And someday your great-grandchild will probably have uh, that rifle if you take care of it and do right by it. Uh, they're absolutely as bulletproof as a rifle can be, and they are a true American classic. And I don't think you can do better. You can go with one of the Winchesters. Uh, it would be my only other suggestion for a 3030 uh, lever gun. And I know some people are going to send me some other options and say, why didn't you say this? And it's because, you know what, there are two weapons that I have a lot of familiarity with, but I would take the Marlin over the Winchester. It is just an outstanding gun. It's been proven in the Deer Woods uh, for close to a century, I guess over a century now. Um, it is just an outstanding weapon. It's not as expensive as you think it is. Uh, you're not, you, the guy said, I'm not a gun guy, so you're comparing it just to kind of, you know, other guns without really understanding those other guns. Trust me, it is, uh, it's not an expense. That's an investment. I think it's, I, I don't think you could do better uh, than a Marlin 336. I'm going to tell you that if you're going to put a scope on it, I would consider getting the Weaver scope rings uh, that are designed to do what are called tip off or flip over. Uh, put yourself maybe if you're going to scope and put a four power uh, fixed four power scope on it with these tip rings, and what that would allow you to do if you ever do take up hunting and you had to take a shot at a running deer close up, uh, you just simply slam the uh, the side of the the scope with your right hand. It'll lay the scope over and allow you to use the iron sights. It's always a good idea once you use the tip-off feature to re-zero, but um, I did quite a bit of hunting with a Marlin uh, in 35 Remington, uh, which is basically the same gun in a different caliber. And uh, every time I used the tip-offs and then flipped it back over, my zero was uh, either dead on or so close that the move was inconsequential to deer size game out to 100 yards. So that's my recommendation there. He also says he's considering a 22, and he's considering three guns for a 22. Marlin Model 60, Ruger 10-22, and the Marlin Papoose, which is a takedown gun. Unless you have a specific reason for the takedown feature, I would go with one of the other two. Um, I've never really used a Papoose. I can't really speak on it very, very articulately. I do know what the gun is. I do know what it looks like. It, to me, it seems somewhat limited because of the way the forearm is on it as far as accuracy and reliability. You're giving up the stability and the, the proven workmanship of a you know one-piece long gun for the convenience of a takedown. Unless you're going to be utilizing that convenience, i.e. packing it under the seat of a car or a truck often, or in a canoe or going backpacking or something like that, I would say just go ahead with one of the full-size guns. Now, your other two choices, the 60 or the 1022, um, you can't screw that one up. You could put the, you know, heads is one and tails is the other and flip a coin and buy whatever one and you're going to be fine. The advantages of the Marlin Model 60 are, one, it's less expensive, so there's there's that. Two, it is the best-selling gun in the history of the world. There's more Marlin 60s out there than any other gun on the planet. 
And that is a fact, and you can check it if you want to. It is the best-selling rifle of all time. And uh, best-selling 22, I'm sorry, best-selling 22 rifle of all time. Uh, I believe it's well over 4 million or 6 million, something like that. Uh, I can't remember, but I did a show on it, but I remember checking what was the best-selling rifle. It was the 60. Uh, I own a 60 and a 22. Um, the advantage of the 10-22 is that... But being clip fed, it's easier to reload, but the 60 gives you 18 shots before you have to reload. So, right there, I, I don't see it being that big of an advantage. If you're a tinkerer, if you like to tinker and accessorize and do stuff like that, the Ruger is going to give you unlimited options. You can make your Ruger look like a 50 BMG, for God's sakes, if you want to, and anything in between. So, if you want to accessorize and play around and buy aftermarket products, I'd say go with the 1022. It's a great gun. I can't fault it in any way, shape, or form. I will tell you that I own two Model 60s, actually. I own two 1022s, and the Model 60 is a slightly more accurate gun in all counts. Both of my 60s shoot better than both of my 1022s, so if accuracy is the most important thing in the world to you, I'd go there. The 60 is a little bit lighter, um, and I just like the way it feels, believe it or not, even though the the 1022 is like a little mini 30, man. I, I just like the way the 60 feels. Uh, it's a good little gun. It's dependable. All in all, it's a better value for the money. Uh, the 1022, I would only go there if you just like magazines uh, or if you want to do some accessorizing. I had another person uh, email me and ask me, Jack, what's in your garden right now? Uh, this person says she's always gardened for pretty uh, and now wants to start gardening to be able to eat some things. So what, what's in my garden right now? Well, this is a transitional time for gardens in North Texas. And she's from my area, so this may not be directly applicable to everybody, but I think most people will be somewhere in this range right now. So what that means is I still have a lot of summer vegetables that are doing well, long-lasting ones, stuff that would probably be perennials if I was in a uh, tropical climate like peppers. I have a ton of peppers coming off right now. My peppers are actually doing better now than ever before. Uh, my pole beans are doing beautifully because it's cooled off. It got a little bit too hot. They stopped producing for a while. So I've got purple potted pole and Kentucky Wonder pole beans that are producing like crazy. I've got some bush beans that are producing really well. I've got eggplant that's starting to throw out a ton of eggplant for me. So I've got all of these um, these summer vegetables. My cucumbers are done for the year. But the problem with that is if you're wanting to plant now, it doesn't do you any good that they're in my garden now because I planted them in the spring. And they've just made it through summer and now they're coming into full fruition in the fall. If you wanted to try to squeeze out some tomatoes or peppers for the rest of the year, I would put them in containers, uh, relatively handleable, handleable, easy to handle containers. I don't know if handleable is a word, probably not since I can't pronounce it, but easy to handle containers, big enough for them to do well, but small enough for you to take them in the house. I would keep it to a limit, maybe one or two tomatoes, one or two pepper plants, and you could probably get by with whenever you're going to have any temperatures close to frost or freezing, bring them in the house and put them back out, and you could probably do pretty well with that because we're not going to have a lot of where you can't get them outside at least for a little while but pretty much it's past the window for planting plants that would be considered summer vegetables now it's time to go into fall and winter vegetables so what am I planting now is I'm planting a lot of different lettuces I'm planting spinaches I'm planting peas
cheese. I'm planting fava beans. Uh, I'm planting Swiss chard. I'm planting arugula. Uh, those are the big things that I'm putting into the ground right now. And uh, it's getting to be that cold time of the year where a lot of your, you know, your tomatoes, your cucumbers, your peppers, uh, things like that. It's just too cold to try to pull that off. So that's what I would advise you to do now. Is to plant your root vegetables are good as well. Beets, carrots, things like that. But now is the time to plant while the soil's still warm. You'll get much better germination right now if you do that than if you wait a couple more months. So what I'm saying is if you go start planting carrots in November, it's not that they won't grow, but they're going to grow very, very slowly because they're not going to get off to a good start and get established before the real cold weather comes down on them. Same thing with your lettuces and what have you. Now, right through your winter, if you're starting your seeds indoors and you set up yourself a little greenhouse, you have a really good sunny window, uh, you can start your lettuces and your spinaches and get them up to about an inch or two in height before you set them out. And they'll handle just about anything that North Texas will throw at them, including being buried in a little bit of snow. The other thing to plant right now are your brassias, uh, your your cabbages, uh, which I don't plant because I just don't like cabbage, your cauliflower, which I don't plant because I'm not a big fan of cauliflower, um, your, uh, your broccoli, which I plant because I love broccoli, and Brussels sprouts, which I'm not a big fan of Brussels sprouts either, but those will all do very well right through our North Texas winters, and you can probably still plant those up in the north uh, part of the United States up in his own five and what have you. The big tip, though, for these types of questions is go to the Farmer's Almanac online. I'll put a link in today's show notes. Stick your uh, zip code in there, and it will tell you what to plant and when to plant it in your area, and that will give you a lot more flexibility than just a few pieces of advice from me. Uh, let's go on to the next question from there. Gentleman writes me and asks me my opinion of doing something like buying a multifamily home, living one of the units and renting the other unit out, specifically a duplex. And... Um, do I think that's a good idea or not? What are the pros and cons? And he sent me the listing. And this is from a place in, in the state of New York, out of the major cities, small town area. I'll leave it at that out of respect for the person. Um, he sent me the, so he sent me the listing, and I looked at it, and the place is selling for 54000 for two two-bedroom units. I don't know the area. I don't know if that's right, wrong, upside down. It, it concerns me that it's that low. But I also know that where I grew up in Pottsville, you could go buy something like that right now for somewhere in that range. Um, you could go buy a single, uh, as long as it was attached to like these row houses they have up there. I've seen them sell in decent shape for $28,000. So that price might be okay, but it, it, it is a concern. I'd want to look deeper. I want you to really think about the area. Again, I don't know the area, but does the area have problems? Does it have crime? Is it an area in decline? Is it, an, is it a neighborhood in decline? Once a neighborhood kind of goes over its peak and starts to go in decline, you don't want anything to do with it from an investment standpoint. That said, almost every piece of real estate in the United States right now, especially in the Northeast, is in um, a depressed mode. So that could be a big reason for the pricing. So as long as the property checks out on pricing, in other words, are comparable properties in the area selling for anywhere near the same price, and are they selling at all? 
That's the other thing to look at to protect your investment. Um, that's it. You got to live somewhere. So if you're comfortable living there, there's there's something to be said for that. Now the other side of this, duplexes in the area. What are a half a duplex renting for? How? What are the occupancy rates? Right. You, you can't depend on that money, but it would be a good idea to know how much you could expect and how much of your house payment that will offset. The next thing you're going to really need to make sure of is this place is selling for just call it sixty grand. Okay. If you can't go out and buy a single-family home for $60,000 and pay for it and not need the rental income, then you're not ready to buy this house. There is no guarantee that you're going to have a tenant. Even if the day you buy it, there's already a tenant there, and you inherit the tenant, they can move out tomorrow. It's great to have rental income. It's a good thing. Never put yourself in a position where you have to depend on it. Additionally... If you live in a house attached to another house, it's a lot like apartment living. If you're okay with the sounds that come from the other side, that's okay. Uh, you can deal with it, fine. That's great for you. I don't like it. I always hated living in an apartment. I hated having to deal with somebody attached to one of my walls complaining if I made a little bit too much noise. As a landlord, obviously, you have more leverage than they do, but they're going to make noise back. You're going to have to give them a lease. It's not easy to evict a tenant, especially in the state of New York. Um, it takes quite a while to get one out who's not paying up usually up to 90 days before you can get rid of an unpaid you know a tenant that's not paying and if somewhere in that 90 days they throw a month's worth of rent at you it kind of sets the clock back another you know 30 days and then it becomes becomes even more difficult if they keep throwing a little bit of money at you um, at least until their lease ends so you really need to do good screening on your tenants before you bring them in and there is no such thing as a perfect tenant so they don't exist if they do somebody else has them all. I've never seen one. I leased my bug out location to my niece and uh, her husband. And uh, they were family. And they're good people. And they were terrible tenants. They paid their rent. I usually had to call them and remind them once in a while to get it in on time. So that wasn't that big a deal. But they did quite a bit of damage to the property. And they never respected the property as being something that was really important to them because, my God, even though it was Uncle Jack's, they were just renting it. So family will do that to you. What do you think a stranger is going to do. Now, the good thing about being a duplex is you're right there. You can oversee things. But you can't... You, but you have to understand, if you've never been a landlord before, you can't just knock on the door and ask to come in anytime you want to. You have to make arrangements with your tenant to come in and inspect the property. Every state differs by what it takes to get that done. Um, it's just like renting them an apartment if you were managing an apartment. So it comes with all of those hassles. So what you have to ask yourself is, is the additional income worth it? What can you rent it for? Is it worth all of that hassle? Or would you be better off buying a single family home and just not having to deal with a tenant? It's up to you in the end. That's the way you have to look at it. And then this goes for any piece of real estate. Make sure you have a good home inspection. Anything that needs to be repaired, don't take for granted what it's going to cost. Get an estimate on the cost of repair before you make the purchase and before you make the offer. Um, A lot of times taking two or three bills, estimates for uh, repair, adding them up and submitting them with your offer will allow you to make a low-ball offer and have it considered a little bit better uh, than if you don't because what that person's thinking now is whoever comes next to make the offer is going to see the same things when they get their inspection. A lot of times inspections will reveal things that the owner didn't either know about or was hoping wouldn't be discovered. And once that dose of reality comes to them, especially with numbers 
attached to it, they're a lot more likely to deal. I would be careful with this decision, but I wouldn't rule it out. A lot of people have done it. It's worked out for a lot of folks. Personally, though, it wouldn't be for me. Let's go ahead and take another question. Uh, before our next question, obviously one thing to consider, too, is, is, uh, is a survivalist, of, you know, kind of a modern urban survivalist. Uh, unless you like, it's it's like your army buddy or something that moves in there. It is a vulnerability during a shit hit the fan to live in a duplex, just like it would be to live in an apartment. So that's something else you should think about because you've got if you've got stockpile food and all, you've only got a wall separating you uh, from a neighbor who may have a much more uh, in tune idea of what you're doing on a daily basis. Now, if you can find somebody that makes a good tenant, that mitigates that. But I needed to throw that in. All right. Our next question is, do I have a preferred eBay seller to buy silver from? Uh, The answer is yes, sort of. Whichever seller is selling uh, the type of silver that I want to buy at the time for the best price and has a good seller's rating. Person that has, you know, a few dozen or more, and a lot of these guys have hundreds of positive ratings. They value that. They're not going to lose that. They're going to take care of you. They're going to make it right. So when I'm buying silver on eBay, I'm not looking to give loyalty to any one seller. What I'm looking for is who has the best deal on a roll of uh, pre-64 silver quarters right now and has good seller rating that I know I can trust. Um, who has the best deal right now on a roll of silver eagles that I know I can trust? That's how I shop on eBay. I'm not afraid to make offers on eBay. Uh, All a guy can do is tell me no. One thing I've been very religious about is when I win an auction or I I, uh, do a buy it now or anything like that, I pay the split second that it happens and I immediately communicate to the seller hey, I appreciate you. Thanks for making this offer. Glad you took my offer whatever. Uh, If you need any additional information with shipping, please let me know. And I usually say in that contact, um, I usually give great ratings to sellers that deliver. I see that you have a great rating. I know you're going to deliver, but I do that after, you know, after I receive my items. I paid quickly. If you consider giving me a good buyer's rating, I appreciate that too. They'll generally turn around and do that to you. Now, why is it important to have a good buyer's rating on eBay? Because the power sellers on eBay that have been there a long time, the one of the things that really drives them much is deal with a person that says, you know, makes them an offer and they go ahead and take the offer, take the auction down, and the guy doesn't pay uh, or pays late, or they're uh, they're a whiny bitch and they give negative seller ratings all the time over nitpick things. Like the guy goes out in the silver world, he buys pre-64 junk silver coins and then gives the guy a negative rating because I couldn't, you know, uh, see Washington's hair on half of them because they were so worn. Well, that's what you, that's the quality that you were buying, but there's people that do that. So when a buyer or seller on eBay looks at an offer from a buyer and they see that this guy has made 50 or 100 purchases and he's got five-star ratings from every seller that's ever rated them, they're a lot more likely to give you a little bit of the benefit of the doubt and come down more on that offer. So that, that question is really not just, you know, who do you buy from, but how to buy and how to do it in a way that makes a lot of sense. Here's another little tip for you on buying silver off of eBay. I've had good luck with this. A lot of times what I'll do is I'll go look at, let's say, a lot of 40 Washington quarters. And I'll go to coinflation.com. I'll use their silver melt value calculator. And uh, I'll say, well, what's the silver in these coins worth right now today based on spot price? And uh, it'll say, you know, whatever it says. I'll usually add about 1% to 2% to that number. 
So it never works out this way. Let's say it was a hundred dollars. I'll offer a hundred and one to a hundred and two dollars to the to the seller on a make an offer type thing, uh, or a bid if it's a bid auction. But I love the ones that say make an offer, like I have a buy it now price and a make an offer price, and I'll usually bid right there. Now most of those people, what they'll do is they'll check. They'll say, well, he's under, you know, he's underbidden. So you know, what's the silver worth today? Because you gotta gotta get at least that out of it. A lot of times when they see that you're right in that spot price range, they'll go ahead and take the offer. A lot of times they'll counter offer. Maybe they'll say, you know what, I'll do that, but normally I do free shipping. I can't do free shipping at that price, so let's bring it up plus the shipping would be a buck ten, $110. So it's a great way to try to haggle a little bit, and uh, I think that's really... But what I want to make sure you get out of this, this answer is don't be afraid to buy from anybody on eBay with good, solid ratings. Uh, that's what's made eBay so successful is you can trust those ratings. Let's go ahead and take another question. All right, this is the one that it bugs me a bit, but it doesn't bug me because the guy asked. It bugs me because I'm so sick of people that sell gold and silver bullshitting the public. Um, he said he's been hearing a lot of fear-mongering about gold confiscation. You know, FDR confiscated the gold. Folks, let me tell you what FDR did and did not do. If you had a bar of gold in your basement when FDR did the gold seizure thing, um, no one came to your house and took your bar of gold away. What we have to understand is at the time the gold seizure was done, gold coins were currency. People went to the store and they paid for items with a $20 gold coin. Okay? They pulled the gold from the currency. So that's the main object of seizure, where the coins that were in circulation at the time that were U.S. currency, so that that currency could be replaced with paper, and honestly the gold could be sold off to prevent the country from going into bankruptcy. And that's why they sold a bunch of our gold over to Europe during that period of time. Right? That happening again is highly unlikely, and the next question, part of this question, so the first thing I'd say is stop stop thinking about that and worrying about that. Anybody that uses it in a sales pitch to you, turn them off, hang up the phone, you don't want to deal with them anymore. Basically, give them the middle finger and tell them, I won't deal with you because you're lying or you're stupid. Okay? They either don't know what they're talking about or they do and they're lying to you. So don't worry about confiscation when you're dealing with a provider of gold and silver. It's irrelevant. The next thing is on reporting. What's reportable, what's not reportable? There is nothing that requires the reporting of the purchase of gold or silver, period, End of story, the end, over. Any cash transaction for more than $10,000 requires reporting. So if you went and bought um, $11,000 worth of gold, you have to report that. But if you went and bought $11,000 worth of freaking marbles, you have to report that because it's a cash transaction exceeding $10,000. That's an IRS reporting requirement that has to do with the dollar amount being exchanged, not the gold or silver component of it. You could go out and pay cash for a vehicle for $25,000. It has to be reported as a purchase because of the cash value of the purchase. Hopefully that makes sense. All right, now on the selling side, 
technically, with a few exceptions that involve silver eagles and uh, gold eagles and certain bars, certain other coins, if you sell anything for a profit, you're supposed to report it. Um, you can sell silver eagles up to 30 a year, and they are 1099able over 30, but it's done on an honor system under 30, which means if I sold 5 watts of 20, uh, it's kind of my own business, unless I make it somebody else's business, I'll let you figure out how you want to handle it yourself. But what I'm saying is all of this stuff gets overthought. Right, and unless you're buying a hundred thousand dollars worth of metals, this stuff is is is, is you're, you're you're letting you know dimes get in your way on your way to picking up dollars. All right, so don't overthink this stuff. Basically, the the way to stay um, it's is. Uh, as fluid as you can with this stuff and minimize tax consequences is make silver eagles a big part of your portfolio because they have a lot of advantages in not being reported on purchase or sold uh, under any circumstances whatsoever. Uh, the other thing is gold eagles, the same thing. And the most reporting requirements involve large amounts of pre-64 coin because you're purchasing currency. So I would just say keep a very varied portfolio, a lot of different things. I like the pre-64s. I like having a little bit of gold in there. Even if you buy the fractional gold coins, fractional gold coins are not reportable. Okay, uh, Silver eagles, and then you know do some things with some silver rounds and all that, some variety and some beauty, and some level of numismatics to your collection that's more personal because remember, I'm not big in a high numismatic value. Just don't let this fear-mongering bullshit impede you from making simple purchases of silver. You can go up to your coin shop every week and buy a couple silver eagles. It's nobody's business except yours and theirs. Their reporting is about their total gross sales and things. It doesn't say John Smith bought two silver eagles from my shop every two weeks. No one knows that you have it. It's your business. How you secure it is your business. Stop worrying about the government confiscating the gold and or the silver. If they start, to, you know, some, some sales and start telling you, well, if you buy this kind of coin, they can't confiscate it. That's bullshit. The government is capable of passing any nonsensical law that it wants to. What it did before is no indication of what it will do again as far as the type of confiscation it might might do. But the biggest thing is to keep your gold and silver your business. Keep it private. That's one of the ways to have private wealth in this country. So keep it that way. Do it in small amounts. As long as you're not doing $10,000 transactions, any kind of reporting is going to be minimalist. Alright. So I beat that one up pretty big, but it's because it bothers me so much. Let's go on to another question. Um, next question. What do I think of the 6.5 by 55 Swedish uh, rifle round as an all-around rifle round? Love this question because I love the round. Uh, I think it is one of the absolute best rifle calibers ever created, and it is one of the best cartridges known to man. I think that it's highly underrated. I also think that if you want the same type of performance out of it, uh, but you don't want to buy a uh, expensive custom Mauser or an old uh, an old uh, military surplus and sporterize it, you can't find what you're looking for. 260 Remington is so close to it, they might as well be considered twins. Uh, so you can actually go with a 260 Remington and get the same type of performance. Though I love the suite itself, it has class, it has history, and it is very, very proven. The, uh, the, 
bullet choice for it is 140 grains, and uh, I think that's your best choice, and that's what I would stick to. I would stick to muzzle velocities if you're hand-loading where it was designed to perform, which is about 2,400 to 2,700 feet per second. I'll talk to you more about that in a sexual de- sexual sectional density thing in a second, but it is an outstanding caliber. Let me tell you a little bit about this caliber and this, this cartridge in particular. Uh, it is highly, highly used by hunters in the uh, Scandinavian area, obviously Sweden, uh, Finland, what have you. Uh, they shoot primarily up their reindeer, which are larger than our whitetail, and moose. The 6.5 by 55 millimeter has probably killed more moose than any other round in the world. There are those that would say that it's uh, an under undergunned caliber, it's not powerful enough, what have you. They're wrong. I'm sorry, that's just the way it is. Anything that will penetrate in, in one side and outside the other side of a moose and put it down is a substantial uh, killing caliber. It's very, very accurate. It has a very low, gentle recoil. Uh, the most undersized shooter in the world with a, uh, a rifle in the uh, six to seven, let's say seven to seven and a half pound range, you're going to have no trouble shooting it whatsoever. It is a dream to shoot. It is, is inherently accurate. And there are people who will say, well, the Scandinavian moose is a lot smaller than like our Sierra's moose. They are. They're still big animals, bigger than a horse. So for an all-around uh, utility caliber, up to taking animal the size of elk and small moose, uh, I wouldn't even have a hard time with recommending people shoot bear with the damn thing. I just wouldn't want to use it for like a grizzly bear that might try to eat me. So unless you're doing that kind of hunting, no problem. I said also in a uh, shoot at the fan, if it was needed to be deployed as a sniper rifle, would it make a good sniper rifle? Yeah, among the best in the world. Uh, absolutely because of its pinpoint accuracy uh, and a very good long-range capability. Yeah, it won't reach out there the way the Magnums do, but it'll reach way out there. If you can't put that into a kill zone at 400 meters, something's wrong with you, the shooter, not the cartridge. Trust me, that's just the case. Now let me talk to you a little bit about this round and why I'm such a big fan of it. It's more than the round of itself. It's a formula. It's a formula that I discovered by accident as I started to evaluate different cartridges and calibers and say, what were the ones that were underrated but had like a cult-like following? People that were addicted to them. The calibers that routinely killed animals that were considered too big for the, for the cartridge. And I came up with things like the 7mm Mauser and the 7mm 08, the 6.5 Swede and the 260 Remington. Um, the, uh, the the 270 Remington, the uh, the 306, quite honestly, with 180 grain rounds, uh, the 33806, uh, which is a uh, Wildcat based on the 306, the 35 Whalen, the 375 H&H Magnum, and a few others. And, and I sat and I looked at all of these and said, you know, the 375 H&H Magnum, that's a, that's a cannon, but when you start shooting animals up to the size of, like, Cape Buffalo with it, there's a lot of people who would say, well, you want to move to a 458 win or a 416 Remington or something like that. It's a little bit of under, but yet it puts them down all the time in countries without caliber restrictions. And, and when you go to that heavier end, that goes way up, and then you go down the bottom end with these uh, 6.5 millimeter rounds, and they're taking things up the size of elk. What is it about this, this round that's common across the board? Here's what I found. I found that they all have what's called a sectional density, and they're heavier bullets of 
at least .280. Now, sectional density is the ability of a round to penetrate. And all that 2.0 needs to mean to you if you're not a big ballistician is it penetrates very, very well. And they all also had a muzzle velocity that averaged between 2,400 and 2,600 feet per second. Much slower than things like a 30.06 with 165 grains loaded hot. Your moderately loaded 180 or 190 grain 30.06 that had this reputation for taking game bigger than it was you know, thought possible, or your 338.06 with your uh, 225 grain bullet, or your 35 whaling with your 250 grain bullet. So they got into these heavier bullets, and they went into a slower velocity. They seem to take on this kind of magic formula for being able to penetrate like crazy and take down larger game for caliber than one would think. And then I found an article of a guy that was writing the article about the 7mm 08. And he explained it this way. This moderate velocity is akin to, I set up three tin cans, and I take a variable pump pellet rifle, and on the first one I pump the pellet gun two times when I shoot the first can. I make a big dent in the can and it falls over. On the second can I pump it ten times, get maximum velocity, I shoot it, the can never moves, and a hole gets punched clean through it. This is your high velocity round. Okay. He says, I pump it five or six times, enough to penetrate, but still at a moderate velocity, just sufficient to give the penetration. And when I hit the can this time, the can falls over and I tear a huge hole out the back side, even though the pellet doesn't really expand very much because it's just a little piece of lead. That's what happens when you take this kind of range for a round. So anything in that 28.280285 sectional density uh, area, in that 24 to 2600 foot per second range, in my experience, will always meet that criteria, and you'll always find that cult following to it. The 280 Remington is, a, is kind of like a, you know the round that wasn't. It just never really took off the way it should. But the people that use it are absolutely 100% dedicated to it. 7mm 08, same thing. 7mm Mauser, same thing. 6.5 Sweet and 260 Remington, those two, same thing. 35 Whalen, 338.06, those, those guys, big time, absolutely stuck on the cartridge. 8mm Mauser with the right weight bullet goes right into that range. And all of these rounds have that reputation. So I know that's a long answer, but I wanted to, I've always wanted to talk about kind of what I call that magic formula. And uh, this was a good opportunity to do it. But the round itself, absolutely can't go wrong with it. But if you want to branch out into other options, look for that um, high sectional density, moderate velocity formula. And uh, any of those rounds will do well for you. Okay, another question last from last week was, I said when I talked about emergency vehicles, or equipping your vehicle for emergencies, that if you were going to be a two-vehicle household and one of your vehicles was a car and you're going to add a second vehicle, I would recommend a truck or a Jeep uh, more than an SUV. In fact, I said I would not recommend the SUV unless you had the SUV and the truck or the Jeep. And somebody said, why? what do you got against SUVs? Nothing. And understand, this is one of these these uh, these statements that is absolutely not factual. It is opinion. It's my my one man's view. Now, here's why I feel that way. 
really, I would say, go with the truck over the Jeep. The truck gives you a lot of flexibility, the Jeep and the SUV do not. The SUV is closed in. It has to be closed in. You don't have the option. The truck, I can close it in with a camper. I can open it up by removing the camper top. I can increase the capacity of a truck with what are called sideboards, which are basically just some boards with some pieces that go into the little holes on the side rail of your truck, so I can increase its carrying capacity. I can allow things to uh, exceed the height of the SUV with stacking with a pickup truck that I can't do with an SUV. So from a cargo standpoint, it's simply more versatile. It also is a lighter overall vehicle, so that means I can generally weigh it down more with this, if everything else as far as suspension and motor and things are the same. So since, and then I also will tell you that they cost less money. A well-equipped pickup truck, you get a comparably equipped SUV, you'll pay less for the pickup truck. So it's a better buy. The Jeep, I'll put there, is another option that I can justify because of its flexibility and utility, and it can go places that the truck or the SUV will never get to. Uh, there's things that you can do with a Jeep that can't be done with any other vehicle. They also have the ability to run open top, so you have that flexibility of allowing things to come out. They will not haul the same amount of gear probably even as an SUV. So the Jeep's there because of its of its terrain uh, capabilities that it can get through. The truck's there because it gives you greater flexibility than the SUV overall. So to me, both of them have some advantages over the SUV. Now, I don't have anything against an SUV as, as a whole. Uh, personally, though, again, if my one vehicle is a car, a passenger car, and I'm going to put utility there, I'm going to do it with a pickup truck, or I'm going to do it with a Jeep. Now, if I have a pickup truck or a Jeep, I'm fine with the other vehicle in the household being an SUV. For me, with the distance I drive, I wanted fuel efficiency, so I went with a small car like a Volkswagen Jetta, so that left me with needing to have that kind of utility, large vehicle, pulling capability, and that's why I went with a Dodge Ram truck. Now, what variety and brand you buy, that's up to you, except with a Jeep, there's only one Jeep, right? Um, we're probably actually going to add a Jeep to our stable of vehicles uh, at the end of this year. I told you last year, everything in the world's going on sale. That's the case right now. Everything is uh, driven down in pricing. Everything's on sale. We're going to probably take that option. We're going to have a car, a Jeep, and a truck. And uh, that's going to give us some redundancy and a lot of flexibility. And, yes, it might be somewhat of a liability if we have to get out. But, remember, by the time we do that, we're going to be very close to moving to Arkansas permanently where we would probably bug in 99.9% of the time. So that now takes away the liability and adds the additional flexibility. And before Besides, folks, Jeeps are fun, and that's, you know, I can try to justify it any way I want. With all our debt paid for, all our bills paid, no vehicle payments, and being able to buy a Jeep cash, we're buying the Jeep for fun because we've gotten to a place in our life where we can do that, and it's going to be great for camping and, you know, off-roading and things like that. Uh, but that's, you know, kind of a long answer to why I recommend that. Now, if you said, Jack, I'm considering buying an SUV anyway, my other vehicle is a car, I understand what you said, do you still think I shouldn't do it? No, it's up to you in the end. Just please consider that before you make the choice, and please go out and look at, well, if I was going to buy an SUV for the same amount of money, what could I do in a truck? You know, find out what the alternative is before you make the decision in any purchasing situation is good sound advice. 
Last question is from a gentleman that uh, is asking me about dogs and which breed of dog to check. He's lived overseas for a while. They're finally back in the States, and they're in a situation where they can have a dog. And um, he gave me a lot of information, but cutting to the chase, and this is the last question of the day. What he's looking for is a dog that will be good with his kids, be a good companion to the family, chase critters out of the backyard and away from the garden and things like that, and uh, at least either defend the family from intruders or alert the family to an intruder's presence. Um, If you wanted me to just off the cuff tell you the dog that fits that perfectly, it's a cur. The cur is a perfect dog for that environment. Um will become very attached to children and family. Kids can just about, you know, step on his feet and back him in a corner. And if it's the family, he's not going to hurt the kids. Uh, but if somebody tries to hurt the kids, somebody tries to get in, uh, they're probably going to have to shoot that dog to get to the kids because the dog will absolutely go ape. Uh, they become very, very attached to their owners. They were basically bred to be exa- They're an original American breed, and they were basically bred to be exactly what you're looking for, to be that versatile all-around dog, and they even are decent as a hunting dog. A lot of people use them as squirrel dogs for hunting squirrels, and they're really good for that. Um, and anything with some cur in it, you know, you're, you're, he asked about mutts in particular as well, and uh, if you find a dog that's like half lab, half cur, uh, that's going to be a beautiful dog for the situation you described if you want a larger dog. Um, that said, let me talk about some other breeds that kind of, to kind of, you know, fit this mold. Um, a lot of people would st- stay away from Rottweiler or Rottweiler mix uh, if treated right and brought up right and pet and loved on and cuddled like any other dog. They are among the most affectionate dogs in the world, uh, but they're very brave. And they will defend their home, and they will defend their people. And they are a huge dog if they ever had to actually act on that protecting instinct. Um, I would have no problem with a Rottweiler in a home with children. Uh, so it's another thing to consider, or the Rot mix. Shepherds and Shepherd mixes, same thing. Um, if you go out and do the, you know, you're going to buy a Shepherd that's a full-bred Shepherd, and go out and buy one instead of doing a Mutt, uh, I recommend that you do not get a German Shepherd from a breeder that breeds like in the watchdog dog security world you're looking for someone that breeds dogs as companion dogs that protection instinct is still there it'll come out when necessary you don't need a dog that's been bred to enhance it that makes the dog not as suitable for use as a family dog so look for and shepherds can be among the most affectionate dogs in the world very very intelligent another breed or with this breed mixed that would be very good for what you're looking for would be anything with border collie in it um, with some chances Challenges. Border collies are probably the, the the smartest dogs in the world. They really are. They are they are so smart it's almost scary. Um, because of that, they need a lot of activity. So they need to be walked. They need to be played with. You need to teach them tricks. You need to engage them in activities on a daily basis, or they will destroy everything because they will get bored if they don't have a job to do. Now, if you have a great big backyard and a lot of squirrels and things for them to chase away, that will give them a job. You still need to do a lot of human interaction with them or any dog, but especially with them. A border collie really, really needs either a huge place to run. I'm talking acres. Or if it doesn't have that, you better walk him at least, you know, five days a week. And you got to do it, and if you don't do it, you're going to regret it. So, great breed, and I'll tell you what, they absolutely will let you know when an intruder's around. Because they'll take that up as part of their job. Because they're a herding breed. 
they're going to take up that, you know, this area is mine to defend, and if anything's here that's not normally here, I need to let the pack leader, which is you or your wife or your kids, they're all the dogs will always see the family if you train them right. The family will be have a higher hierarchy in the pack than they do. So their job is to alert you to the presence of an intruder immediately and then take up a position of defense. Border collies will do that well. Most of your herding breeds, your other your other uh, general collies, uh, your uh, Shelties uh, will take that approach. So they're good for that. Uh, let's talk about some dogs that are probably not good to give you the portfolio of things that you're asking for. Number one is one of my favorite breeds in the world, the Siberian Husky. Uh, I just lost my guy a couple months ago. He was a great dog. I loved him dearly. He was a big part of our lives. He was special to our family. But as a watchdog, he was absolutely worthless. Somebody probably could have come in that house and murdered me with an axe. And he would have just stood there. And I don't think he, I don't think Husky, Huskies in general, general comprehend violence about the only thing I've ever seen them be violent with are rats and mice and unfortunately if you don't train them right cats uh, huskies can and have especially cats that are strange cats have this instinct to kill cats I think it's more of a play instinct I don't think they really get it they're just there's no violence in them and they generally don't understand violence uh, my husky in particular I had him uh, at a vaccination clinic we were getting vaccinations for the dogs inexpensively there were dogs everywhere and uh, another dog kind of came towards him. The lady had her on a leash, and the dog snapped at him. And he never even reacted with any kind of anger or anything. He went right back, and he was going to get bit in the face if I didn't pull him back because he didn't get it. So huskies are not right for that. I would also say most of your pure hunting breeds, Brittany Spaniels, Springer Spaniels, um, German Shorthairs, all of the, the in general hunting breeds, uh, with the exception of like Labrador and Golden Retrievers, probably not what you're looking for there because those dogs need need to hunt. They're bred for it. It's been in their blood forever. And unless you're going to take them hunting or take them in a lot of wood trips where they think they're hunting, they generally get kind of antsy. And they get kind of destructive because of that. So you've got to give that kind of, of dog a, a job. And then we have a lab mix and he's probably got chow in him. And uh, something else, he's got white feet. The older he's got, the more he looks like a, a purebred lab. And a lot of, like, the chow look and the tufts of hair have come out. Now he's just kind of, you guys have probably seen him in the videos. Uh, he's exactly what you're looking for, though. Um, he will not let anybody near the house without barking or alerting any sound. He's on it, even though he's an old dog now. He's a senior citizen dog, and he's still got that alertness if there's any sound outside of the house. Nobody can get in the backyard uh, without us allowing it once that's, He's fine. He can be friendly. But if you try to go back there when no one's around, he's going to go ape. Uh, we had a cable installer try to climb over the fence one time. The dog tried to kill him. I mean, and this is a gentle, kind creature. But he knows inherently that that fence is not meant to be you know, climbed over, and the guy came to the door, and he was white in the face and said, I need to get back and work on your cable box. So the gate's around the corner. He wouldn't go back there until I pulled the dog out, because the dog's reaction was so over the top when he tried to climb the fence, and he would, he could not understand that the dog knew the difference, but the dog knows the difference. He was not trained to do that. Now, how did we pick him? I took my son to the SPCA, and I said, son, pick a dog. And uh, he had his heart set on a golden retriever, because he'd had one in the past, and there were no golden retrievers there. And I said, look, all of these dogs are in danger of someday being put to sleep if nobody adopts them. You go look at them all, and you pick one. And he finds this little black puppy, and he says, I think I want this one. 
done, the end of the story. Now, what's my point there? When it comes to choosing a dog for your family, go out and look at dogs, get to know dogs, touch dogs, pet dogs, interact with them. There's a dog out there for your family. And what will happen is you might have a predisposition toward a breed or a type or uh, a source, either a breeder or adoption or what have you. But when you put your hands on and your family puts your hands on the dog that's right for your family, you'll know it. Now, what I have ever said, I want to go out and find kind of a mongrel, a little bit of shepherd, chow, uh, lab, some other unknown little black puppy that's, uh, you know, basically my kid picked him out because he peed his own water dish. No, but when my son said, this is my dog, I went, okay, that's it, done. And he was about seven and a half, eight years old at the time. Now, you let that kid make that choice, but I'll tell you what, the dog has been a perfect dog for the family. So my point is, you'll know. And uh, if you don't have a dog in your life, if you don't have a cat in your life, uh, consider adopting because uh, it'll bring a lot to you. And with that, I'm going to go ahead and wrap up today. And remember, making an animal a companion, they'll do a lot for you. They'll help to protect you. They'll help defend you. They'll give you attention. And in a bad situation, having your kid in the backseat of your car with his dog and you have to get out and you have to leave your home, that'll make things a little bit easier to deal with. And having that animal in your life is a great way to live a better life. If times get tough, or even if they don't. You can scream, and you can holler, it really doesn't matter, cause it all gets spent.